When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. It's a super fan week. We have Tara Jenkins back to talk about Ned's fifth POV chapter. And then up front, I include a short excerpt of Linda Antonsen. If you don't know who Linda is, you might have seen this beautifully illustrated book, World of Ice and Fire. Linda was one of the co-authors on that book with Martin and Elio Garcia. Linda and Elio have been working with Martin for years. They started out as super fans, became co-authors. Martin has said that Linda knows the world of Westeros better than he does. So you don't get a bigger super fan than Linda Antonson. I will have Linda back on to talk about Sansa's chapter in full. Next Sansa comes up. This is just a short excerpt of our longer conversation. Steve and I cover The Climb, and medievalist Jenna Matthews will join us in our Bird's Eye View section to talk about the parallels between Dante's conception of hell and hell as it is conceived in Game of Thrones. Without further ado, all the way from Sweden, here is Linda and Tonson. Now, George has described himself as a writer, as something of a gardener. Oh, Yes. Um, so that, I mean, that suggests to me that, uh, you know, you can press the metaphor too far, but it suggests to me that you're kind of, you know, planting seeds and wait to see how they develop and how they grow. Mm. And I think that that's fine for beginning a story Mm. and very, 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 very few people can do, can do what George does. Yeah. But I wonder if being a gardener. It's helpful to build worlds, to begin story arcs. At some point, you kind of need to be an architect and come up with like a rigid plan that you're going to follow. How would you react to that? I think there's probably some truth to that in the sense that also one has to remember that before embarking on Song of Ice and Fire, George had written many, many, many short stories. Yeah. (laughs) And a number of standalone novels. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, right. For sure. which this method or television worked. episodes, right? That last and tele- 40 minutes. And and the gardening approach would have worked fantastically for all of yeah, those. Yeah. And they but yes, I'm not sure I think it's very difficult for a gardener to uh there's a lot of seeds and, and it's growing and I think the garden has definitely burst out of the original boundaries <laughs> yes, and yes. there is a jungle by now yeah. there, there's an absolute jungle and at the same time you cannot expect a writer in his 60s to 
sit down and say, yeah, and today I am going to change the way I write, the way I've been writing my whole life. (laughs) So it is a dilemma. Um, But yes, I think that gardening becomes very difficult Uh at the the massive epic stage. Also looking at the fact how many massive epics that are completed do we really have? Right. Well, it's, yeah. There's not that many. At this scale... I mean, if this look, if this could have been wrapped up in four books, then that would have been amazing. Yeah, it, and we would all rejoice. It would it would be like this is one of the most magnificent stories we've ever read, and the fact that we're getting more should be also joyous. You know, it'd be like it's not done yet. Like I, because a lot of times what'll happen is I'll finish a series. And I'll think, oh, no, it's over. I wish there was more. I wish Tolkien would come back and tell I mean, me what I, happens I love the next. fact that it's <laughs> been stretched out in a sense yeah. and given us so many years of discussion. Yes. Uh, but yes, there's, a, there's, of course, a point where you wish that, okay, maybe that's a few too many years mm. of discussion yeah. given the theories that <laughs> people are coming up with to pass their time. Yeah. Well, also, there's all kinds of new external pressures. Yeah. Some of these earlier writers... The authors of these Russian epics, mm. they did not have to deal with the internet. They did, they did not have to deal with you know a, a massive you know HBO adaptation that no. took over the world. Um, yes, but I mean, so in in many ways, George is something of a victim of his own success in that way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the uh, the HBO show. I mean, nobody expected it to be such a global phenomenon when we were discussing it on the board when the first season was coming out it was like oh yeah it's cool we're getting a season it probably won't go further than that but yeah it's cool to see at mm-hmm. least the first book uh and then after that yeah maybe we'll get one or two more uh, yeah and, well and you got pe- you got people like me who like were introduced to it for the first time <laughs> on the screen and just thought well i now i have to go read everything this guy's mm-hmm. ever written because this is an amazing story. Now, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it must seem, you must feel like you've been on a roller coaster. <laughs> I, I I just can't imagine sort of being so early on in reading the books and thinking, oh, I need to tell people about this because they don't know about <laughs> Game <Yeah>. of Thrones. <laughs> and it's good and more people should know about it. Yeah. To... I mean, I just found it browsing a bookstore. Nobody told me about it. What year was that that you were browsing? Uh, that would have been, uh, came out in um, paperback in 96, I think. Mm-hmm. I think, because I think the hardcover is 95. And then, uh, you know, establishing Westeros.org and then yes. co authoring A World of Ice and Fire and all of that really happened before it became like the most successful show in history. Yeah, but by that time, um well the when the book come when the World of Ice and Fire finally came out, the the show had already started because it took a little while. Right. But um when we signed the contracts, that was right before I guess the negotiations with HBO started. So we've learned some year or so later that there were a potential for a TV show. But you hear this all the time. Uh, books are optioned. Mm, and mm-hmm. and the authors are cautioning people, you know, 
books are optioned all the time and only a small fraction right. of them ever right. make it uh, to, to TV. And obviously, right now, a lot of fantasy is making it to TV, thanks to Game of Thrones in no small part. But yes, it was um, it was big it, uh, around the time of the third book of, of A Storm of Swords. That's when it started to become big in the fantasy community. Right. And where it's being discussed a lot in fantasy circles. And so we had been fans of Real of Time before I read Game of Thrones. So we had experienced a little bit of that fandom, not from the ground level, but sort of seeing how that fandom developed. And it was the most active and the biggest series at the time. So it was there was a little bit of a friendly rivalry to start mm-hmm. with. Sort of, oh look, now it's kind of it's almost selling as much as Robert Jordan here, and and we're, it might become as big. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it just must have seemed surreal. You know, that fourth or fifth season of the HBO adaptation where now everyone was watching it or they they had to endure their friends who were watching it. It must have just seemed really bizarre to you to see oh, it yes. get to, to that kind of height. I mean, it started being very bizarre already in the first season when... Uh, on the ninth episode with... Um, Ned's execution. Uh-huh. That's where um, our website just went nuts. <laughs> and we had uh, real time analytics, Google, and we were looking uh-huh. at uh, the wiki and the number of people who, right after the episode, hit Ned Stark's page to find out he's not really dead. Uh-huh. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> there were so many concurrent users and i mean then we struggled with the servers for several years after we uh-huh. we reconfigured them and managed to get it to work by the end of the season every damn year and then it was even bigger the next year and we had to get more servers in and, and we our poor sysadmin had to do all these <laughs> things to try and uh, optimize as much as possible the build running the forum and the wiki on the same server mm-hmm. turned out to be a lot of competition for resources from two different programs that was not easy then the reactions with people with the red wedding i mean that was yeah right that was filming another cultural and, moment really yes Right. Well, I appreciate you reflecting on that. I, it just seems to me that 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 roller coaster must have just felt surreal. No, it has been, and also the fact that we then, when the book came out, started to get these various invitations to to talk on TV, or right, sure. to do commenting on TV, yeah. to be on on radio, to go to Spain several times. Well, yeah. Once he says that. You and Elio know more about the world than he does. <laughs> then, then that that kind yeah. of creates a little bit of work for you. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of people who decided, okay, we can't get George, but there's this <laughs> couple in Sweden, and then you know the the, um, the newspapers here that like we've never heard of you people, and like Martin is saying that you know Westeros better than he does. Like, who are you? How did this happen? <laughs> Um, well, I, let me just say, uh, I appreciated your world of ice and fire so much. 
um, especially when I was writing the the Gods of Thrones with with Aaron, I just felt yeah. like this is invaluable. I, mean, I was so appreciative for your work on that. So, oh, thank you. It was um, it was so much fun to to get that insight into George's process and just to work on the whole thing, being allowed to be part of the selection of art and and all of that. Like you know, most authors don't get a say on what's on the cover of their book. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, Linda, let's do this again yeah. sometime if you're open to it. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. I Well, then you will definitely get an invitation. <laughs> you're not Chad, that's for sure. You're I not Chad. I am not Chad. Nope. That goes in your favor. Chad is being penalized. What do you mean? He's in the penalty box. He's benched. I was not happy with his last coverage of Ned's POV four, and oh, no. so he needs he needs a little bit of alone time. He's he's got a timeout right now. All right. Well, that's a high bar. Chad suggested that Ned, on very little evidence, kill his wife's childhood friend. I know. Just kill him dead in a brothel and then, like, yeah. lie about it later. It would go against everything in Ned's character. You know, I think that situation would only work if he was a time traveler <laughs> and he just knew how much crap <laughs> Littlefinger would stir up Yeah. and uh, yeah. just nip it in the bud then. So Chad was clearly wrong and must be punished. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm going to give a, a little synopsis of this chapter and then we can chop it up. Okay. Uh, Ned is melting in the heat and Pycelle's honey sweetened iced milk is not helping. Ned sits opposite of the Grand Maester and tries to pry from him any details that might shed light on John Arryn's death. He hears about a book, iced wine, a troubled wife, but none of this gossip makes any sense to Ned. He leaves and has a short exchange with Arya, who's practicing her balance atop a staircase. The father and daughter talk about her future prospects in a conversation that also mentions Bran and Sansa. Then Ned receives his second lesson from Littlefinger. He should question John Arryn's squire, but do it through a proxy. Also, it would be best not to trust anyone, Littlefinger especially. All right, so Tara Jenkins, do you want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Let's climb the ladder. Okay, now for a while I was thinking the ladder kind of sucks. There's no point in including the ladder. But then after a few guests didn't choose the ladder of chaos, I kind of started to miss the ladder of chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to see where you go. <laughs> Ladder of Chaos. I hate Pycelle. I hate every. I, I may hate Pycelle more than any other character in all of really? Game of Thrones. Really? I hate and him. Why is that? Why? Okay, first of all, he's not fooling anyone. Even Ned. Even Ned thinks like I don't think I can trust this guy. He leaves and thinks, you know, I wonder who that guy's really serving. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he served something like four kings or something. Those are very different kings with very different political platforms. I think he's, he does whatever he, it takes to kind of just stay afloat. Mm -hmm. And he's not, I don't feel like he's very good at it. I feel like everyone knows he's kind of a scoundrel. 
And, it, and no one's mm-hmm. buying his like old man daughtered routine. Mm-hmm. But they also don't feel very threatened by him. They're like, yeah, whatever. Let him play his little games. He's actually not that big of a threat. So really, he's mm-hmm. just annoying. He's just annoying everybody. Yeah. That's why I hate Paisel. Like an old politician that, you know, his games are kind of obvious. Yeah. He's Mitch McConnell. Yeah. He's stupid Mitch McConnell. Well, he probably has less power. Yeah. He's than... probably less dangerous than Mitch McConnell. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, I think, I, I think I don't want to talk about Picel at all. Okay. I just hate him so much. So unless you have something that you would like to say about Picel, I'm just going to treat him as if he. Well, the, it was surprising to me how it was represented in the HBO series that all of a sudden he's like this spry guy who can like do like aerobics. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind <laughs> of like a, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then he kind of hunches and you know, does his thing. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's not that interesting. He's kind of a pretty minor. I think he's the... a mild annoyance and I think he should be mm-hmm. treated like a mild annoyance. Now, but here's mm-hmm. here's what I will say about that first section of it. I have a mm-hmm. theory about John Arne's poison. Mm-hmm. Picel goes out of his way to mention that he likes to put ice in his wine. And I thought, uh-huh. well, that's how the, they, whoever poisoned him, that's, that's how they, the poison, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how they delivered the poison. That's, it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty clear. So anyway, I have no other evidence. I don't, I know that sort of Littlefinger and Lysa conspired to do this or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know who else is involved, but, uh, maybe Pycelle's involved too. I who knows, but I maybe. Think... I mean, if he knew that detail about him, right? But he also puts ice in his milk, so maybe he's just like yeah, Vita who's using ice. The other thing I was gonna say is that those first few paragraphs about Ned, we have every indication that Ned is out of his element. Mm. So he's suffering in the heat. It's like a animal out of out of his natural habitat. His silk is sticking to his chest. Like, Ned Stark should not mm-hmm. be wearing silk. <laughs> you know, he should be wearing yeah. mm-hmm. something that a northerner wears when it's, you know, the summer snows. He shouldn't be wearing mm-hmm. silk, it's, and he's totally uncomfortable in it. And yeah. then, in order to sort of alleviate the heat, he's got to drink something that's overly sweet. Yeah, I totally wrote all that down, too. The South is too sweet, yes. too hot, too frivolous. Too vain for Every, that. Yes. Everything about this context uh-huh. is putting Ned out of his element. At the end of one of the chapters, maybe it was the second chapter with him, uh, he had just had a conversation about the past mm-hmm. and like, should um, the king trust the Lannisters? And at the very end of the chapter, it says, a man cannot always be where he belonged, though. Resigned, Eddard Stark... Put on his boots, or put his boots into his horse, and set off for the king. So it, I mean, he's he's resigned to do this, but he knows he doesn't belong there, and he doesn't. I mean, he yeah. he doesn't play the. Everyone knows he doesn't play the same game. He even knows know. he doesn't, right? Yeah, Littlefinger literally had to be like, "There's spies watching you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, "There's spies watching me," you know. <laughs> so I mean, it's like you have no clue the game you're playing. He's like, "Oh, maybe I should have trusted you." 
And Littlefinger's like, no, that was the smartest thing you could do is not trust me. Right. Like, <laughs> You idiot. You know? You're not yes, learning. Yes, I'm showing you that everyone's watching you, and I'm probably a spy too. And yet you're going to say, oh, maybe I gave you, like, you know, mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, Pycelle says minds are like swords. Mm-hmm. All right. So that kind of echoes something that we've already heard a couple other characters say in Martin's mm-hmm. world. And then... Littlefinger later on is looking at Barristan the Bold. He's looking down at him kind of with contempt saying, you know, I wish he was as bright as he was good with a sword. Mm -hmm. So Littlefinger is reiterating this idea that you can either be good with a sword, you know, you can either be like a really good fighter or you can be a really good strategist. And it's and it's hard to be both. Either your mind is your sword, or your sword is your sword. But it's very, very unlikely to have both in the same person. Mm-hmm. And I think, for the most part, it's kind of true in Martin's world. I can think of one kind of example of someone who's both a really deadly fighter, but who's also a really brilliant strategist. But for the most part, I think that it's very hard to find a character that's both, right? Who's the one? So I want to hear you kind of noodle over this a little bit. So I let's mm-hmm. start with, you mentioned Jamie, right? Mm-hmm. So Jamie's not dumb. Mm-mm. But I would not consider him like, oh, he's a brilliant strategist. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's a brilliant swordsman, average strategist, not dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think same thing could go for like Brienne, you know, great fighter, not dumb. Mm-hmm. Is she a great strategist? I don't know. That's That's kind of not her character. Mm-hmm. On the other yeah. side of it, who are the great strategists? You've got Littlefinger and Varys and and Tyrion. Tyrion. Um and you you know, Lady Elena and you could put a few of the other people Probably in this. Cersei. I mean Tywin. I think Cersei could could be a, so much more if she was if she was given a chance, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if she's yeah. ever kind she's of working really with being a woman in that world. Right. She's never really given the chance that that someone else would, but in all of those cases, they're brilliant strategists. Are they good in a fight? They're not great. They wouldn't be great in a mm-hmm. fight. You know, Tyrion can kind of hold his own. I guess mm-hmm. I would imagine. Surprising. I would imagine that Tywin was maybe decent in his day, but we don't ever really see that part of him. That's not what he's known for. So, mm-hmm. can you think of any characters who are both? Like really great martial, you know, with with really great martial prowess, but also have really great political minds. What about Danny? I mean, she she definitely is a strategist, and she, mm-hmm. I mean, in and of herself, she's not a fighter, but she uses her dragons like a weapon. Well, she's got the best know? weapon, right? She's got the biggest gun, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. At this point in the story, even to where mm-hmm. she is at the end of Dance, mm-hmm. she's got the biggest gun, but she doesn't know how to use it. Like she, like she doesn't know how to control her dragons. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily call her like you know a magnificent fighter. The only person that I can think of that's mm-hmm. both is Braun. Hmm. I think Braun is really bright. And thinking strategically, even though he's kind of a sociopath yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and but he's yeah, also a really great about, fighter. 
So, so what I'm the visual, how I visualize what you're talking about is like, someone might be a great fighter, like, uh, Brianne or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Jamie, I'm looking at again, like a chessboard and it's like, okay, they're, they're fielding what's put in front of them each move. Like they're in the moment, they're in the move. What's the wisest choice in that? you know, with what they know. Mm -hmm. Other people are actually like strategists where they're like, I see five moves ahead and I'm going to try to move the board in a way to get there, you know? And so I don't, I don't think of, uh, uh, you know, Braun is like that. I think he's super smart. He's a fighter. Mm -hmm. He does what probably benefits him and maybe people he likes, but it's not like he's, um, you know, the spider or little Yeah, you're probably who- right about that. Yeah, he's probably an average strategist. So if that's the case, it could be that this is a general rule in Martin's world, that if you're Littlefinger, yeah. you're not going to be as good with the sword as someone like Barristan and the Bold. Mm-hmm. And those two kinds of characters are always going to look at each other with contempt, right? Mm-hmm. Ned's going to look at Littlefinger as, you're, just, you're not really a man. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a sniveling little whatever... Um, mm-hmm. So th- I th- there's, I think that there's yeah, a, there's a, a tension. common tension it's, between a yeah. little finger mm-hmm. type and a Ned type. Yeah, and his, you know, his dig um, at this, you know, sword fighter is probably a dig at Ned, and then right. Ned bristles at it because it's like, well, I'm kind of like that guy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I could totally see that. So given that, let's just say it's a general rule in, in Martin's world that you either are a magnificent fighter or a magnificent strategic mind or a pawn. Yeah. Or you don't have, you know, or you, you, you either have one sword or the other, right? You have, you either have your mm-hmm. mind or your hand. You don't have both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's say there's a general rule. I want to talk about Ned's conversation with Arya from that mm-hmm. vantage point, because okay. Arya's concerned with, with Bran initially. Yeah. She says, what's Bran going to do with his life? He was going to be a knight. Mm-hmm. And I think what yeah. Ned says is he says, well, he there's a lot of things he could do. He you know, he could be still be mm-hmm. a, a great lord. He could be high septon. But I mm-hmm. think that Ned in Ned's mind, he's kind of that's kind of a concession. He that's not what he wanted. He would never want those things for his sons. Mm-hmm. Those are lesser those are less manly occupations. You know, he doesn't want yeah. someone who's using his mind to affect change in the realm. He wants a man's man who can do what needs to be done, not talk about it. You know, walk softly, carry a big stick kind of guy. That's who he wants for his you sons. Know, and that I mean that that's a possibility. The other possibility is he knows Bran and he knows what Bran would have wanted mm. with his life. Mm-hmm. Like Arya saying, basically, Bran wanted to be a knight, mm-hmm. you know, a, a Kingsguard. Can he still be a knight? And he's like, oh, no, there's other options. And then right after it says he's sad, you know, but he will never run beside his wolf again. He thought mm-hmm. with sadness mm-hmm. too deep for words or lie with a woman or hold his own son in his arms. So I think he's he's trying to like give her you know, the truth of there mm-hmm. are other options of greatness, but it's probably not what he wanted. He's not going to be free, like mm-hmm. a, a free little boy anymore. He's never going to, yeah, th- like, yeah. father, sons. 
I think so. And I think in addition to that, and I guess here's the case I'm making, I think he's happy that Bran has lived. I think he's still grieving the loss of his son's masculinity. Because he's got this ideal of masculinity. It certainly doesn't look like Littlefinger or Pycelle. It it certainly doesn't look like the High Septon. He doesn't even like being Hand of the King. He do, he would prefer that his brother be Lord of Winterfell. He mm-hmm. wanted for Bran what Bran wanted. He wanted for Bran to yeah. be a man's man. And so even though Bran has lived... The ideal of masculinity that he would have wanted for his son is out the window. Well, he he also says in that passage, he says he might raise castles like Brandon the Builder Mm -hmm. or sail a ship across the Sunset Sea. So Mm -hmm. I think he's giving other options of like Mm -hmm. how he could channel his, you know, himself into. It's not going to be necessarily he'll be the mind behind the building. Yeah. He he'll, he could be a captain of a ship. He probably won't be like the sailor, you know. But I think I think he he knows that there are pathways for him, but it's not necessarily what he he thought his son would mm-hmm. do or what his son wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But in that, like Arya hears that and she's like, "Well, what are my options?" <laughs> and isn't this right? <laughs> and it, here's and here's the yes, and here's the irony of it, right? So he's got this ideal of masculinity that Bran's never going to live up to. And here sitting next to him is a a child who wants to be a great swordsman. That's mm-hmm. what she wants to be. And he just, he can't see that as a viable option for her. So I, I thought that was an interesting way and in, into Arya's dilemma. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like that before. I, I felt like I'm a pretty mechanical person. Mm-hmm. And so I think if I was a boy, I probably would have had a lot more of that, like, apprenticeship mm-hmm. of, like, learning Yeah, totally different. or whatever. A- absolutely different. I mean, and you're a twin, yeah. right? So, yeah. so you could kind of see, like, probably more acutely than most daughters. Like, it wasn't just... Age or, yeah. It had, didn't, didn't have to do with age, didn't have to do with, you know, uh, you know other things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's... But if it was skill, I think I was probably more skillful in that way. But I think, you know, it was more like, okay, Mm -hmm. the boys do this. Sure. And it's just, it's just, you know, the way the world kind of falls in. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'll put myself in this category too. Even the most, you know, loving and, uh, you know, uh, sensitive and open-minded parents can lapse into those sort of Mm -hmm. gender expectations, right? Yeah, I mean, we are limited by our own culture, our own experience. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this little passage here. Arya cocked her head to one side and said, Can I be a king's counselor or build castles and become the high septon? You, Ned said, kissing her lightly on the brow, will marry a king and rule his castle. And your sons will be knights and princes and lords, and yes, perhaps even High Septon. Arya screwed up her face. No, she said. That's Sansa. She folded up her right leg and resumed her balancing. Ned sighed and totally. left her there. Like, she totally dismissed it. Right? Like, that's, that's not the it's, right answer. <laughs> it's such a short, it's such mm-hmm. a short conversation. But it tells you everything you need to know about those two. But you know, characters. What? I the the previous conversation they had, 
you know, it seems like he's like, you can keep your sword and I'll find you a sword master, you know? So, mm-hmm. and he, and he also, yeah. you know, loved that in his sister in a sense and kind of thought, well, you know, maybe she should have a, had a sword and Arya wants a sword and it's so important to her. I'll actually mm-hmm. indulge her in this way. But when it comes down, yeah. Yes. However, I was going to say, that's Ned listening mm-hmm. to his better angels, right? When he's exhausted and thinking about other things and his mind is elsewhere and he's just trying to be like a dad in between mm-hmm. appointments, his default position is absolutely with those gender norms. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's easy to sort of sort of collapse these characters into like, well, Ned, Ned's this way. Well, Ned, Ned's a man mm-hmm. of two minds yeah. with Arya. You know, when she can, when he has this a moment where they are kind of both vulnerable with each other, he mm-hmm. can see her. You know, he can see her for who mm-hmm. she really and, is. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, he's just going about his day being yeah, a man. Yeah, and I mean, in the that other um, interaction, Arya was super upset, and so he like went to her and had to talk to her and follow mm. father her and basically say, can you make my life a little easier and just fight the bad guys, not, you know, people like your sister. Like, mm. so, I mean, I, I think his focus definitely was more on her in that, in that moment. But yeah, I mean, I, I see her, him as letting her keep that sword and learn it as an indulgence, not as like, it's going to change her future mm. at all. He, he still is, has, is blatantly telling her, you're going to marry well, and then your husband and sons will be distinguished. Mm. So I, I have a little story about me trying to be kind of a... A Ned? An enlightened, a, okay. a, an enlightened parent okay. and it not working out for me. <laughs> okay, so, so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a father of a, a daughter and a son. And my daughter, I was just adamant, she is not going to... You, she's not going to be subjected to Barbie. I'm not going to mm-hmm. let this happen. I watched a documentary with Naomi <laughs> Wolf, and I was just, you know, when I was in college, and I was like, hell no, I'm not going to impose those kinds of gender expectations and impossible body types yeah. and, you know, whatever. Barbie's mm-hmm. evil. Barbie's evil, right? So I kept on, like, pushing against this. And then finally Sarah's granny gave Nessa this... I'm not kidding. It's like a, it was like a three foot high Barbie. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know they made Barbies that big, but it was uh-huh. like a three foot high Barbie yeah. and she just loved it. And so I was like, oh, well, shit. that's the, all right. I guess that's I'm, I'm going to lose this battle, right? Being trying to be a woke feminist, you know, it's like, you can't impose <laughs> if she wants to have that Barbie, you can't just say, no, there's an ideal above that, that you have to do this. It's like, let her be her. Like the girl she wants to be, right? <laughs> so I lost that. Yeah, yeah. So I lost that battle, right? And she didn't care about Barbies yeah. much after that. But you know, whatever. I I was putting a lot of. So then, I found myself living in like the middle of the Midwest in like mm-hmm. Central Illinois, and my son's like three years old, and we're over at a neighbor's house, mm-hmm. and they've got Barbies, and so then my son wants to play with Barbies, and like. The the couple we were with were like looking like, eh, is dude, this okay? You know, is this, are, are we sure that this okay? And I was like, oh yeah, it's okay. He <laughs> can play with Barbies if he, you know, right? <laughs> totally trying to, totally trying to yeah, be yeah. Mister Progressive and like being a complete yeah, hypocrite totally. at the same time. No, I know. 
<laughs> so we all we all fail sure. as parents uh, in yes. odd ways. <laughs> you know what I was wondering in these chapters is if anyone actually misses Catelyn. Because mm-hmm. I don't hear Ned talk about, oh, I wish I wish Catelyn were here. Or I don't hear he either of the daughters say, like, when do we get to see he mom says he again? W- he, he was missing her being in her arms. That's what it said. Well, that's um, a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's saying he's missing the, the north. Like, he doesn't want to be there. Yeah, he's, he's missing the, the north. north. And, no one misses Catelyn. And- and he said, and and Catelyn's arms. So, anyway, I I mean, I think he has has. I think he's missing here. I don't know about the girls. The girls, Sansa's super caught up in mm-hmm. Joffrey or like being the princess or mm-hmm. you know all that. Still, I was wondering about this because I was thinking, I wonder how much Catelyn has actually done to mother these kids, or whether it's been like. Septa Mordain or some other mm-hmm. group of servants who have actually raised these kids because yeah, she wanted to see them, but yeah, I don't know. She did. She yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. she did. All right. Yeah. So notable introductions. We hear about King Aegon the Fortunate, um, okay. King Jaehaerys. We hear about uh, King Maker. We um, hear about Maester Coleman. But this mm-hmm. is sort of like all Pycelle reflecting on bygone eras. But Maester Coleman, I, I suppose, was had some kind of role in King's Landing and then was dismissed, mm-hmm. which makes me think, yeah, hmm, I wonder what Maester Coleman knows. Exactly. And I mean, I was thinking because he was basically saying he dismissed him because he was trying to purge like, you know, like mm-hmm. whatever was going on with him. And so what if that had saved his life? And he dismissed him and he said mm-hmm. he didn't think that Liza would ever like forgive him for dismissing him. Well, it yeah, like I think had... if Cersei thinks that John Oren is getting close to her secret, even if she wasn't involved with any of the poisoning, I could see her saying, you yeah. know what? Yeah, let's it'll... let it play out. Like, mm-hmm. don't let anyone intervene. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Show differences. Uh, this there's a couple scenes in this that are very faithful to the book. Uh, the Arya Ned scene is pretty faithful. Mm-hmm. The scene between Pycelle and Ned is similar. The scene that was most different is that instead of being in Ned's solar with Littlefinger looking out the window, mm-hmm. that Ned and Littlefinger are actually walking through the courtyard so you can kind of get a little tour of all of the spies you know that are sort of in the employ of different people mm-hmm. do you think that do you think that Arya will end up being a morally gray character at the end or do you think that Arya will end up it does she have a redemptive arc or is she going to murder her way to the end of the story I think Martin has right now where we leave her, she's just murdering fools left and right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, something that I thought about Red reviewing all these chapters is like he suffers no fools. <laughs> yeah. So does Arya. She does not, you know. And so, yeah, it's almost her. She almost has like a sword of justice that she wields. But her it's her own moral code, basically, of where mm-hmm. she 
she's decider and executioner and all that. I think that Martin probably has a true affection for Arya. And so I think we'll love her by the end. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, I love her um, now. Yeah. It's I love Arya yeah. now, but I, I feel like, man, I just feel like at some point you have to stop killing, killing, <laughs> killing people. Well, do you say that about other knights? Yeah, you know, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about the Hound. I feel that way about Danny. Yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. um, my here's my when sense. Does it end? My sense is that Danny's gonna just keep murdering fools until there are no more fools, and mm-hmm. I think and eventually that's gonna be a problem. You know, you Danny's you, gonna do that or Arya. I think Danny's gonna do that. I think. Okay. I think she's just uh-huh. gonna keep murdering fools until it's like I don't know if I can root for you anymore. You're gonna murder your way yeah. out of my heart. But yeah. I I don't want that to happen to Arya. I just don't. Yeah. So the more killer, the less you kind of disjoint yourself from your humanity mm-hmm. in a sense. So at at what point is there like remnants of humanity and who? Who will come into your life to humanize you? Mm-hmm. Danny has no one to really do that. You know, Arya has this family and who knows if she connects with them again. And if there could be this calming, you know, mm-hmm. maybe if she like comes back to like her true, like stark self, who knows? But I, I kind of, I feel like she has more rooting. That's what that I want. Could actually ground her. Yes. That's what um, I really want. I want Danny her to come back to her stark self. Yeah. If well, Danny comes back to her Targaryen self, it's bad for uh-huh. everybody. Yeah, maybe their true selves. I mean, this is what Danny's almost going more toward it. And then mm-hmm. if is Arya going further away from it? Well, so, see, I think that both of those characters are justified along the route that they're on. I mean, mm-hmm. Arya lost every sort of anchor to her childhood. She lost all of her mentors she ended up falling in with a group of cult assassins, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you who, know the, the hound difference? The hound is not a good role model for anybody, right? No. So she- but Arya, Arya had nine years of a pretty good foundation and... That's right. You know, childhood and a loving father and a loving mother. I mean, even if she didn't understand her, I just... She had a, you know, John and her had a bond, yeah. like Brandon and her had a bond. I really feel like her foundation was more solid. Danny, as like an infant, I think she was like exiled, only had this weird sadistic brother mm-hmm. to kind of be with her. And then, you know, no parents, like this pressure, this mm-hmm. idea of this like fantasy kingdom where she like takes over again. And that that's what drives her and her brother. But there is no like softness there is no like you can be a child it there there's always a sense that you're in danger yeah and i think that that can definitely change her psyche where you know she doesn't really if you talk about attachment you know styles like she definitely would not have a healthy attachment to Mm -hmm. any like primary caregiver Mm -hmm. uh aria does so i well interestingly enough yeah interestingly enough danny despite all odds has a moral compass she has moments where she can look out and say that's wrong what i what i see before Mm -hmm. me is it does not look like justice but the way that she tries to balance 
the injustice is always like, well, I'm going to take control. And if I'm in charge, then no one will be able to do bad things, right? So Mm -hmm. her move is always to grasp for power, grasp for more power. And so... Dominate and then kill the bad guys. Dominate, Mm -hmm. dominate, dominate. So, yeah, I mean... I don't know. I maybe I just like Arya more, so I want her to have a redemptive. Arc. Of course you do. You love her. <laughs> I love her. Poor Arya. <laughs> and now comic Steve Osborne and I talk about episode six of season three. This is where Sansa finds out that she has to marry Tyrion and Shay finds out at the same time. Mel meets Arya and says that she's gonna kill many people with Brown eyes, green eyes, blue eyes. And of course, John and Ygritte are climbing all the way up that big wall. Do yourself a favor. Follow Steve on Instagram. That's Ozfest, A-U-S-F-E-S-T. If you have a question for Steve, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Here is Steve Osborne. Steve, would you rather time travel 100 years into the past or 100 years into the future? prohibition yeah and you got the roaring 20s going on you've missed the spanish flu right you just missed that but you're looking down the barrel of like world war ii and like the great depression am i traveling to visit or am i traveling to start a new life you gotta stay there and i'm going there at this age so Oh, that's a tough one because the future is, you know, obviously, um, and I, I hope I'm not spoiling this for any of the listeners, is unknown. Um, it may totally suck. I was talking with my daughter about this. You don't know that there's going to be a place where you go. Right. Yeah, roll your dice. It's the devil you know, right? I mean, I roll your dice. It's something you have no idea, you know, and, and, you know, you hope it's better. I mean, you're going to have to learn technology, theoretically. If I go to the past... See, it's not pa- like it'd be one thing if you're like junior year in high school, but like, yeah, there's a few, few comebacks I would have liked to have had back, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a few arguments I felt like I could have won, and, uh, less embarrassing things I could have done. And, and so, but like, you go to a time where you've had like, you're not even, you know, you have no influence, right? I mean, like, like you can't change anything that mattered to you per se. Yeah, you might get polio. Yeah. Polio sucks. And then the other part is, yeah, it sounds like, well, the other thing is, is like, if I go in there, I'm like, I, I know a lot. I know, I know it would show how little I know about the twenties, you know? Yeah. You wouldn't even be able to bet on baseball. It'd be like, I don't know. I mean, I know the Yankees were good at one point. Yeah. I'd be paying, like, like I don't, it shows how little I paid attention in history. Cause I'd show up there and. I'm thinking you on one hand you're like you'd have the hubris to be like, dude, I'm from the future, man. I know all kinds of stuff. You're like, none of what I know translates. <laughs> like like your knowledge of three is company trivia is not gonna help right? him in nineteen twenties. And then I'm trying to then I'm like, Well, I guess I can just make three's company now because it hasn't been Well, made. that's the thing. Like you could you might be able to, you know, come up with a few ideas that are music right like you could theoretically like it's the whole Michael J. Fox, uh, you know, Marty McFly. Ripping Dude, off you would just be king of the barbershop quartet. <sighs> just all these Billy Joel dance. <laughs> 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 it's just like trying to trying to translate them for the for the time. You know, I'm like trying to do. We didn't start the fire, and they're like, "What the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> He's just making stuff up." <laughs> Children of the little mind. I don't even know. 
<laughs> I don't know, man. Um, Ygritte knows about John. I mean, there was always the question. The, the question. You right. Know, number one, is he loyal? She nails him. She said, I know you. You're loyal. Like, that's that's yeah. your defining characteristic. You're loyal. And so she nails him in that way. And then she uses it against him and says, well, now that now that we're a thing, I'm expecting you to be true to yourself and thereby be true to your girl. I'm, I'm starting to buy it, man. Yeah. I'm starting to buy it. He, I think he's smitten. I think. Uh, and do you think it's, it's, it's purely for love or at least what he thinks love is? <clears throat> or do you think there's more to it? But this is a good question. Well, he's a maid, right? So we've established mm-hmm. that. So this is the first girl that he slept with. I think that there's going to be a connection there. Right. Right. Um, like when Ferris Bueller said um, that Cameron was going to marry the first marry girl. The first, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first girl that he laid. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He, Jon Snow's a little bit, a little bit Cameron. There's a little Cameron in Jon Snow. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go. He's got daddy issues. Gonna, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that there's something there. And I think that he he's impressed with her. She's clearly impressed with him. Right. So that's the thing is she seems she it's it that's pretty genuine, right? At, at least from what I gather. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and John and John could use a little personality in his life. So I'm I'm enjoying those two and I'm enjoying sort of John Snow's journey into the wilderness right so he's he really is going native in more ways than one yeah so what i mean that's an interesting element right because while this all is part of the wider westeros narrative it's it doesn't feel like it ties in even as much as so like someone like danny's narrative like you see why it ties in because she's still she's got aspirations Mm -hmm. for the throne Whereas this doesn't have that same moving, the, the, you know, the chess pieces of the kingdom necessarily. It, it seems almost like it's more of a, something that is a a disturbance. Yeah. It really does seem like a side plot, doesn't it? Yeah. I think that, let's just imagine there there's a core of the fan base who are also sort of book readers, or at least interested in book lore, right? I think the very first thing that you know about this series is that Game of Thrones is the title of the first novel, but the series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm. All right. So people who are sort of interested in book lore know that. And so that they kind of suspect that the stuff that's going on in King's Landing are really sort of pawns repositioning themselves when the real battle is going to be the ice monsters of the north and the fire monsters of the south. And they'll probably end up meeting somewhere in the middle. So I think you got Danny, who kind of seems separated from the whole narrative, and John, who kind of seems separated from most of the narrative. But there's your ice and fire. I think there's your ice and fire. That's right. Gotcha. Um, Roose Bolton does not partake of wine, Steve. He does not. Which is further fuel to this Roose Bolton is a vampire theory. <laughs> so there's just the, every now and again, the little hint, little hint that, that Roose Bolton's a vampire. 
you know, these little hints start adding up after a while. And then, then you kind of start liking, you know, you start to watch the show and enjoy it more through that lens. And Jamie or uh, Brienne just looks horrible in that pink, big pink dress. <laughs> just absolutely horrid. That that dress may be the most grotesque thing of the entire series. That's incredible. And, and this is in his episode where Theon gets his finger cut off. Yeah, flayed and then cut off. Yeah, flayed. Flayed until he begs for it to be cut off. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's a rough one, man. I mean, the flaying is a. Uh, it's you just just to see a little bit of flaying of the finger was enough because like you that one like you felt. You know what I mean? Like there's certain torture scenes like that one. I'm like, oh, I, I feel that one. These this guy, he took his sweet time. You know, oh, he yeah. wanted to. He really enjoys. He, he wanted to do the foot thing first, and then he wanted to do the psychological thing next. Then he wanted to you know parch him and starve him. He really wanted to get to the flame, but he was sort of like, I'm just going to save it. I'm, I'm just going to save it. I mean, this guy. Well, and also the more psychological thing by lying about it, like, oh, you figured me out. And he's like, nope, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's just so. Oof. Here's the issue. A lot of people like to say, and you'll hear this a lot. A lot of fans will repeat this, that there are no good or bad characters in this story. There's only shades of gray. Mm. You hear that a lot. And that's, you know, that's why Martin is a genius or whatever. It's totally not true. This guy, Ramsey Bolton or Ramsey Snow or whatever, he's evil. He's evil through and through. There's nothing yeah, good about right? this guy. I mean, because even if you play the, like the Dexter card, right? Like, well, he's torturing somebody. But he's only torturing someone who, who likes to torture, right? He did kill a couple of kids. And, yeah, yeah. and so there's that part, but it's the sheer glee in which he does it, where it's almost as if it's like, look, I, I want, I'm a flay somebody. Um, if this helps, if this helps you feel better about me flaying somebody, then just send him my way. The question about why he's being tortured is, is sort of telling. It's like, why are you being tortured? Well, the only reason is that I want to do it. Right. There is no reason that there's no logical reason that you're being tortured. I just right. enjoy you're not getting it. out of this. Yeah. Yeah. There's no this isn't about justice. This is about sating my own desires. See, this is one of those things where it's like it's like you thought Theon was a bad guy. You know, and we saw all of his character development. Like he's kind of a jerk. And then we kind of feel sorry for him, and then he burns two kids, and yeah, you're gone. You're all the way gone. Yeah, exactly, right? And then all of yeah. a sudden, we build up with his character development, and, and it it was almost like he walked into, like he <laughs> like he's a little fish, and then he just ran right into this monster, this sea monster, that's so much worse than anything he could yeah. have ever imagined. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's, Martin has basically has been toying with us. It's like, you, you well, thought this guy was bad. Guy. You have no idea what I can do. Um, Edmure has to get married. In fact, this is a lot of, a lot of marriage. The, and the threat of marriage, if you will. The threat of marriage. That's right. Yeah. In the ancient worlds, there's a lot of power in war and weddings. And so you're going to see a lot of war and weddings in this show. Um, so Edmure is going to have to get married to someone that he doesn't want to get married to. And seemingly 
four of the characters we know are going to have to get married to someone they don't want. Right. And um, the, the the scene with Tyrion going in and having to break the news to both Shay and Sansa. <laughs> There's some things that we don't want to hear. <laughs> Uh, just the awkwardness. And I thought it was an interesting choice to cut away from the scene so you don't actually have to experience the awkwardness. All you're seeing is the aftermath from Sansa's emotional aftermath. Uh, They didn't actually show the scene where he was trying to explain what was going to happen to both his lover and his fiance. Yeah. Because I haven't seen that on screen before. Right. It's uh, It was together similar to like certain horrific scenes, like certain horror scenes are so like supposed to be, they're more, they're more terrifying if you just yeah. do a, conjure them in your own mind, which is kind of an interesting dynamic in this particular episode because we don't get that with the flame for the most part. We get pretty up close and graphic with that. And, you know, while it's upsetting to watch, there's something to be said for the the emotional toll of what Tyrion has to say. And so when it cuts away, your imagination does in that what normally you would have reserved for the torture scene. That's right. Because Sans is being tortured, basically. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. she's It's psychological torture, but it's torture. Gendry gets uh, spirited away by Mel. What we assume, right, is he's just going to become a, a smoke-a-baby machine. I mean... J- this guy's just got fire upon fire. Yeah, he's young, and she's gonna drain him of all of his smoke, babies. Until what? Until he's just spent. I guess that's what I imagine. I imagine he's just, just there to pump out them smoke, babies. So Mel is sort of the most. Would you say that Mel sort of is the most religious person that we've met in this world? Maybe. So Mel, I mean, we're seeing Mel developed along these lines, and then she meets, you know, Thoros, who's sort of this, he's not very good at the religion part of it, but she ends up running in in the same way that Theon kind of runs into someone who's more monstrous than he could ever imagine. She kind of runs into this, this situation where she's just amazed at this whole resurrection business. Perhaps. I mean, you, let's not uh, paint the Lord of Light with too, uh, too fine a brush. I mean, like there are plenty of uh, evangelical Christians who are on the fence for healing and right. speaking in tongues. And there are others that are like, no, this is commonplace. This is what we're about. And so there's sometimes the disbelief. And it's like, yeah, I believe in this, but I've never seen this part of it. Right? Like, I mean, I'll birth a smoke baby. Yeah, for sure. That makes total sense to me. But resurrection? I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, it's interesting to me what she thinks is impressive. Because yeah. <laughs> because of the smoke baby. So yeah, well, it it comes back to the smoke baby. If you can birth a smoke baby, yeah. I, I I will be impressed by whatever you think is impressive. Well, and it could be one of those things where she's like where she sees herself as someone who can produce a smoke baby as sort of the human pinnacle of the Lord of Lights earthly manifestation and then to see somebody who can die and come back it's like well did you just one up me well and to be you of all and people to be like one upped by someone who's irreligious right 
exactly right so that's the thing is like you were used in such a way without the uh you know i'm shrouded in a cloak of this stuff i, I everything i do oozes um that the night is full of terrors it's my thing yeah and so so she see so in, in some ways you see you're seeing the lord of light in a different light because it's like well without all the pomp and circumstance and religiosity he the lord of light uses this guy well what am i doing so speaking of religious constructs i thought that little finger's little speech at the end was really really sort of telling about the world that's being constructed here uh, right. it's it's sort of like Varys and him are both going to agree that the realm is this social construct and, and it's kind of fleeting, right? It's a lie that we've told ourselves. But Varys, he's of the view that the lie is important to maintain because the only alternative is chaos. Right. Whereas Littlefinger is like, yeah, I can do a lot with chaos. Yeah, almost as if chaos in and of itself can be controlled, right? So it's like it's you know, I mean, you, if you can take advantage of chaos, then it's not your chaos. It's it, it's the illusion of chaos as well because it can still be manipulated. Right. Yeah, it's the difference between being sort of Machiavellian, which I think that they both are, and being someone who's Machiavellian but really doesn't care who suffers, uh, you know, because it's all sort of meaningless. I mean, I guess you could say that. Baelish is something of a nihilist. Like he just he doesn't believe in anything. It doesn't really matter who gets hurt. And we find out that not only is Roz dead, but we also find out that Joffrey Joffrey was the one that tried to have Tyrion killed. Not not uh yeah. not his sister. Yeah, that was an interesting uh reveal. I feel like this episode was while it was fascinating, you had the flame and you've got all these these really great moments. It does this one this one is another one of those episodes that feels like where you're like, okay, well now what? Like some, some, not that they all resolve and there's always a sense of what's going to be the next thing. But this one had a little bit more of that like cliffhanger-ish type feel um, so that each, each sequence felt unresolved. So even, you know, like, okay, well now what? You know, and, and like I said, even maybe more so well, than some of the other yeah, episodes. Well, yeah, but I mean, the resolution, I mean, to find out that Roz is dead... I mean that. Yeah, that was her resolution. Yeah, that's so. true. And it, I mean, and and it keeps the Varys Littlefinger kind of rivalry going, and it and it shows. I mean, again, it's like it's because we've seen we saw Varys with his sorcerer and his patience and everything. So like, you, just when you think that like, ah, Varys seems to be like a guy you just don't want to mess with, and you know, maybe you can't, maybe he's the he's really on top of it, and then Littlefinger demonstrates that. Um, He's still playing. He's still playing the game, and he's still a, he he's still a formidable opponent. So. You get the sense with Littlefinger that he's not just sort of punishing Roz for her treachery, but it's almost like he's it's like she's a afterthought. She, what he really wants to do is he really wants to one up Varys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. So that that almost makes it even more the whole thing even more disgusting, right? Right, because yeah. She was of yeah. so little value to him that, you know, he just to make a point. Yeah, that's wild. All right. How are your dogs doing? Dogs are good. We have a new fourth one. I don't know if I've told you about. You have not. Yeah, his name is Laddie. It's a little Yorkie with a big, big penis. Really? 
Yeah. Like a pod-sized penis? Well, apparently, like he was neutered recently. And I guess if you don't neuter a dog, their penis and their butthole keeps growing. I didn't know this. <laughs> Who would? But wait, why the butthole? Why the butthole? I don't know, man. I just know it looks it looks <laughs> looks like my belly button. <laughs> I mean, his penis is pretty big. When he gets on his back for you to rub his belly, you can tell time. <laughs> uh, so, so he's now neutered, or he? Yeah, he was. He wasn't. We got him. Yeah, so like they had just neutered him before because he was, I think, for breeding or something. He was at a rescue. Heather was grooming him for his uh, would-be adoption. And uh, she sent a picture. And she's like, because I love you. I'm not going home with this guy. And I was like, yeah, if you love me, he'd be in your truck right now. Oh, my, my. So the next day she went and got him. She's like, are you sure you want four dogs? I said, well, you can't have five dogs. Unless you're. <laughs> All right. That's your choice, man. Yeah, you want that life. Because. That's it. I'm about that life. I guess you are. What? Now, why does the butthole grow? Do, do we? Is there a biological reason for this? I mean, I would assume so. I mean, I don't know what the advantage is, right? Like, I mean, I guess, you know what I mean? I mean, I really don't. I mean, like the penis, I think I can get, it still doesn't make a ton of sense, but at least the argument could be made. Well, you know, it's a, a virility thing, I guess, or, or maybe it's just usage from stretch. I don't know. But like, I, I, I mean, here's my guess. I, I don't know, but here, my guess is that a bigger butt hole would produce bigger turds, right? Sure. And that's got to be impressive in the dog world. <laughs> you know what they say. <laughs> Men with big shits. So this is from Elizabeth. She asks about the concept of hell and eternal punishment. She asks, does Martin speak to the concept of hell and saints, and how does that compare with Dante and the medieval conceptions of eternal punishment? Hmm. You know, the concept of, of hell is dynamic and shape-shifting, and, and how he speaks to, you know, Dante's famous version of hell is, is sort of the, the cyclical version, and then mm. the concept that, like, if you descend into the pit of hell, that ultimately you get to the very bottom, and then you kind of open a trap door, and then you kind of arise out, um, and it's this reverse funnel. I would say that what we see in Game of Thrones is a bunch of ideologies and worldviews and conceptions of both kind of the, the imagined heaven and the imagined hell. Mm -hmm. um, what I see, and this is my own interpretation in Game of Thrones is kind of a, a vision of, of what hell can look like on earth, right? Like what, sort of did this, what we might see is sort of the That's descent. That's exactly what Mel thinks, you know. Right. <laughs> and so um, the concept of hell, at least in Dante, is everyone is tempted and everyone is, is vulnerable to their own personal sense of weakness um, and temptation. And that certainly we can look at each of the characters and say like each of them kind of, whether it's lust or whether it's greed or whether it's envy mm. or pride, you know, they have a mortal flaw that we can all relate to that propels them downward. You know, ultimately I think in kind of the end to widespread distraction. So if you haven't looked at this, it's worth doing like a Google image search for Dante's hell because it's like all mapped out. Just imagine like a giant hole in the ground and then it kind of spirals to like seven different levels. And I think it's important to point out that Dante was really successful. Like he was very influential. 
and how people started conceptualizing hell as sort of this eternal place of, of eternal punishment. Because there was all kinds of varieties of the afterlife before Dante. And then Dante kind of was so successful. I mean, there there's stories about like Dante walking around and people can like, you know, smelling his clothing to see if it smells like sulfur because, you know, here's the guy that actually knows about hell. He must have visited hell at some point. I think it's fascinating just because his work of fiction was so popular that he really did sort of push a pop culture into popular theology as well. Well, I mean, in that sense, you could argue or you could make a really compelling case that Dante is kind of the, you know, 14th century Martin. A little um, bit, like, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, like, like, really what he's famous for is constructing the geography of hell. So that image that you're directing readers to yeah. is sort of a, a later artistic representation, but he mapped out the architecture of hell, like exactly. for the first time, like, yeah. and he identified it as being like, here's where you can find it. The portal is in Florence, right? You know, um, and I, I think that that's, that's so valuable because he created a textual map of a conceptual concept that really was an organizing principle of so many people's lives. And then, right, and like, that's essentially what Martin's doing too. Yeah. Just to sort of circle back to Elizabeth here, I think that, you know, that the common curse, seven hells or whatever, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the belief of, of the Westerosi devout, at least, that there are seven hells. This is probably just a, a little wink and a nod to, to Dante, I would imagine. Yeah. We're going to have Jana Matthews on every week to answer a listener question. Of course, in order to make this work, we're going to need your help. Please email to book at baldmove.com if you have a question for Jana. This can relate to a parallel to a character in Game of Thrones. Does that character have an analog in the medieval world? Or it can relate to customs or lifestyle in the medieval world. So, book at baldmove.com. Book at baldmove.com. 